Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Bianca. Gianna, I'm feeling kind of sad because it looked like my whole fam had a really fun time at Oktoberfest this weekend, and I feel really sad that I wasn't there. Don't be sad. It was fun, but you are where you're meant to be, but we wish you were there too. So... Josh and Adrian had a little Oktoberfest party in their lawn last night. It was so cute. Like, APT's favorite sister and favorite brother-in-law. It was so cute to see Josh in his element. He brewed his own beer. And we played this German stick-throwing game called Koob. <laughs> <laughs> It was honestly really fun, and um, I'd like to say that I knocked down all the cute coobs, and um, I totally knocked Josh out of the water in this game, so. That's what I heard. I was getting all these Marco Polos mm-hmm. of Gianna, like, beating everyone in this game, so I'm very happy for you. Thank you. Yes, it was um, really a moral victory for me, so. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> No, it was it was really fun, and I think Josh, of course, was really bummed that he couldn't go to any Oktoberfest in Oklahoma City or the one in Tulsa, which is really great. How was the beer that he brewed? You know what? I actually didn't have any of the one he brewed, but because I've been sticking to pale ales for the time being. Nice. Um, but it was good. I heard great things about it, so I don't know. Wonderful. 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 <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) How was your week, my dear? Oh, you know, not much to report over here. It's been kind of a slow week, but it's nice. I had the weekend to get caught up on things, and now I'm just ready for some APT content. Always ready for some APT content. But I think that you and I did participate in a similar activity because I did watch both of the Witches movies this weekend. Yes, so I'm glad that you watched both of them, and I'm also very glad that you stuck to your goal of making chestnut soup, or no, you just roasted some chestnuts. I just roasted chestnuts, but our mom makes like the best chestnut soup, and I would like to make that, you know, maybe for around Thanksgiving or something like that, but yeah, I just roasted them in the oven. Okay, well, equally toasty. Love it. Equally toasty. So... The remake of the movie The Witches came out, and it was actually released on HBO Max. And I mentioned last week about the appeal of the original movie, which was basically Angelica Houston with Jim Henson vibes. So Mm -hmm. the movie attempted to bring the same quirky charm that the original had. And I think kiddos will really like this remake, but... As an adult Mm -hmm. who was pretty partial to the original, I didn't feel like I needed this remake. And I'm honestly just really tired of living in a generation of reboots. I would really love to get some new quirky cult classic Halloween movies up in here. So Mm -hmm. please and thank yous to whoever is in charge of doing that. (laughs) (laughs) The Hollywood cult classic team will send this their way. Hollywood cult classic team of quirky Halloween movies please and thanks. <laughs> but I I like the undertones of this movie using the main character 
um, who is this young boy who's our hero figure and his grandmother, who's played by Octavia Spencer, who we love, mm-hmm. um, to speak about class and race. Having mm-hmm. our hero figure as a young person of color is really important. And Anne Hathaway had, no pun intended if you get this reference, big shoes to fill. And mm-hmm. um, all in all, she was great. And I... I thought it was fun to see her and Stanley Tucci back together, but I didn't feel like I needed it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Actually, it wasn't until, I guess, a bit into the movie that I realized Stanley Tucci and Anne Hathaway, of course, are the iconic cast members in The Devil Wears Prada. But yeah, Gianna, I would agree. I thought Anne Hathaway did a good job. I, you know, it was it was good to watch. It was something fun to watch. But I agree. I mean, I, I guess if you're going to remake something, I'm I'm definitely happy about the choice in casting, like you said. And I obviously love seeing a more diverse cast. If you're going to do a remake of something but i do agree i'd like to just see original content Mm -hmm. with always a a diverse group of cast members and writers and directors and movie makers in general so yeah yeah but it was it was good it was like it was a good watch yeah i didn't mind that I could watch it for free on a platform you know that i already pay for like that was nice right yeah yeah it was fine Speaking of more Halloween movies, I had been looking back at some things from that gender and visual culture class that I had mentioned last week, and I remembered that for my final paper in that class, I had written about a horror film that was directed and written by the incredible Cindy Sherman, and I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Sherman, but if you're not, she is a feminist artist who is probably most known for her film still series from 1977 to 1980. She's known for these manipulations of her own image where she plays with the idea of character tropes and gender stereotypes and these kind of caricatures. Her Instagram is also pretty active. For a while, she was posting these like wildly manipulated and very saturated portraits of herself. But anyway, in 1997, she released a horror film starring Carol Kane, Molly Ringwald, and Jean Triplehorn. The movie is about this mousy little lady. Her name is Doreen, played by Carol Kane, whose office job is turned into an at-home position during downsizing. And she accidentally kills one of her coworkers, and then she discovers that murder is actually really fun, and it kind of cures her loneliness while she's at home. And she starts bringing all these dead bodies of her coworkers into her basement. (laughs) So I'll say it's not the scariest horror film. I think it very much fits into that kind of black comedy realm. And if you're familiar with someone like Carol Kane, you can kind of imagine what her character would be like. Uh, But it's really fun to watch if you're familiar with Sherman's work. Even if you don't know her aesthetic it's also a great watch but seeing her artistic style come through in a film when Sherman is an artist who's worked so much on these ideas of gender in film is is really cool so 
Yes, love Cindy, love Molly Ringwald. The film, although directly acknowledged by Sherman as her project, but not as her or part of her body of art, still Mm -hmm. does explore themes that she addresses in her art, such as the struggles of power between genders. And in the film, she shifts those power dynamics by using a workplace environment in which the male characters are also written as an afterthought in the larger narrative of the film. So although I think, Bianca, as you mentioned, this isn't necessarily exactly a horror movie or horror movie, mm-hmm. um, it's still critiquing and reinventing and using cinematic concepts such as melodramas, chick flicks, dark humor, and even film noir to make this stylized film that has these horrific motifs. Yeah, it's super fun. It's Office Killer. I think I forgot the title. Office Killer from 1997. So if you have time, check it out. Woo-woo. So last week on the pod, we were talking about how Josh could get us some art news music. And a couple days ago, Bianca and I get a message from Josh that says, check your APT drive in our music file. And there is the most iconic sound dropped in our folder for us. So get ready, guys, because on Tuesday, you'll get to listen to our new art news sound. A little bit of death metal for you. A little bit of discordia in your APT corner. (laughs) All right. Ready for some art news? Wow. I hope you guys really like that because we really like it and I want to keep it. (laughs) I feel like it really fits the vibe here on APT. I'm really happy about it. APT vibes for sure. Josh just like really nailed it on that one. He for sure. Out of all our sounds, that's definitely the best one. I think so. I think so (laughs) for sure. (laughs) So in our Q&A episode with the Art Pop Tarts, a listener asked about art theft in which we talked about the historic Boston-based Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist the largest property theft in the world. So a new documentary aired this month on BBC called The Billion Dollar Art Hunt that follows the journey of Charlie Hill, a former detective in the Metropolitan Police Art Squad. I love that an actual art squad exists, by the way. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Who received a tip-off revealing that the 13 stolen works were shipped to Ireland. The doc revealed that the tip-off was from a notorious Irish gangster, Martin the Viper Foley. (laughs) The Viper (laughs) claims Mm -hmm. he was in communication with a gang responsible for the heist 30 years ago and then hid those stolen works in a house somewhere in West Dublin behind uh, a wall. So Foley has also suddenly not been in communication with the authorities after news of the negotiation between him and the art squad broke in Ireland. So coincidence? I think I think not. not. <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah. Okay, so I I have like some thoughts. <laughs> 
So I, I was really excited to watch this because I'm actually taking a trip to Boston in about two weeks and I just purchased my tickets to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum today. And I will absolutely report back to APT and give you all the details of the missing works. But I did watch the documentary and actually the most interesting thing for me about the whole thing were just the different jobs associated with the art world how different sectors of our world are connecting to try to bring these pieces back together. And I thought Charlie Hill's job as an art detective was really fascinating. However, (laughs) something about watching an hour of all white men just like speculate about things we may know in the case. And, and, And none of them were terribly convincing about any of this even charlie who is in contact with the viper so (laughs) i don't know it made me like kind of distrust anything that the documentary was trying to offer but they did interview the woman who produced the last scene podcast about the heist and she actually seemed like the best expert on the case and I think what she said, I, I would agree with the most, just as someone who is clearly not an expert on the case, but just as someone who's interested in that it's an interesting story to follow the connection of the Vermeer to Ireland. So rather than tracking the Rembrandts that were stolen, the Vermeer's connection to Irish crime does seem pretty tangible on paper that is is a route to explore but what kelly horan said is that it's probably more likely in actuality that the works have really never left the united states and it's still that lead of the italian criminal community that that may be where the return comes from but who knows i mean i think in the end i'm glad to see people around the world and in different careers to take an interest in the art. So that that was really cool to see in the documentary how law enforcement brings all these different types of work back and how that's, you know, even a pathway for people interested in the arts. But so if you were a listener of ours in the UK, you have access to watch this documentary on BBC's website. But if not, I found the documentary on YouTube, which I have linked in our art news playlist on our YouTube channel. Side note, we have been linking any videos associated with our weekly art news on our YouTube channel under the art news playlist so you can get more information for the weekly art news there as well. Yeah, I thought the doc was interesting, but part of me was kind of like, I don't know if this new information was enough to make another doc about it. Um, Because if I'm not mistaken, didn't one already exist when this... Well, there have been like several books written about this. And like I said, there's the Last Scene podcast, which may be the, the most recent media coverage about the heist there there is a documentary on it but i think it's like several years old yeah so but those have all been looking at the italian mob and this the reason this documentary was made was because of the irish connection right well i am definitely excited that you're going it'll be really interesting to experience that in person i also think 
it's kind of funny just in regards to everything we've been talking about this month that the frames will still Mm -hmm. be there the empty frames of the stolen goods there's something a little bit like ooh about that (laughs) yeah yeah for sure i'm really excited to see him well cool come back and report some hard-hitting tea can do can do well gianna it is the last week of october the end of scary season and hopefully also the end of an even scarier four years of the u.s government hope this is your last week to get out and vote i know we're probably preaching to the choir here but get out and vote as early as you can as safely as possible And make sure you are getting all the people in your life to go vote as well. But this week on APT, we're art pop talking about something slightly less scarier than another four years of Donald Trump. We are talking about monsters. So we're going to talk about monstrous theory, monsters in art, and then we are going to end with a little discussion of the new HBO series, Lovecraft Country. So Gianna, I would like to start with asking you about your favorite monster. Are there any monster movies that are a yearly classic for you? Hmm. Mine, I would say, aren't so serious. Um... But a really classic one I like is Young Frankenstein with Gene Wilder. Oh, yes. Yes, and Pete Boyle, who was Frank and Everybody Loves Raymond, (laughs) which is so random. And then, Bianca, we were talking about this, the first Tremors movie with Reba McIntyre and Kevin Bacon dead, just because it's literally so stupid and so good. No, it's so good. Fuck you! (laughs) (laughs) tremors is just a gem a a true gem true gem i was thinking about the 2006 movie the host it is a korean film directed by bong joon ho the director of the oscar-winning parasite so it's about a monster that emerges from the han river after the american military dumps chemicals into it so I definitely recommend The Host. It's it's a really, really good monster movie. Mm. Yeah, when I looked that one up, I knew that I knew of the movie. But mm-hmm. yeah, I haven't seen it, but I love that director. Yeah, yeah, definitely recommend The Host. So Gianna, do you want to walk us through a little bit of the history of monsters? What have monsters traditionally represented, and how are they used in our visual cultures? We know that monsters predate written language, but our continuous fascination with monsters and even horror comes from a mixture of pleasure and fear. By looking at its definition, a monster is a mythical creature which is part animal or part human, or combines elements of two or more animal forms and it's frequently of great size and of ferocious appearance like me haha (laughs) (laughs) i wasn't expecting that that was good me neither little ad lib ferocious appearance i love it at least right now because oof mama you look hot mama's tired this week (laughs) 
After kicking, she's after she kicking has a ferocious appearance. <laughs> after kicking Josh's ass and Koob, I'm a little bit tired. It just really took it out. <laughs> oh my gosh! So starting with the use of monsters, both visually and literary, in myths and legends, some classic examples are centaurs, the Sphinx, uh, the Minotaurs. And other hybrid examples are of the manticore, a lion with a human head and the tail of a scorpion, the chimera, a lion with a tail of a snake and the head of a goat, and the cockatrice, a dragon with the head of a rooster. And then there's a griffin, a lion with the head and wings of an eagle. So, however, monsters are not solely subjected to these hybrid traits, as they can also be classified by having exaggerated traits, such as a giant who are like humans, but obviously significantly larger. But the word monster comes from the Latin word monstrum and derived from the verb monere, which means to warn. According to Stephen Asma in On Monsters, An Unnatural History of Our Worst Fears, a monster is an omen, a display of God's wrath, a warning of the future, or a symbol of moral virtue or vice. So what do monsters mean to us? How do we acknowledge their presence in history? And why are they a staple theme in myths and legends? Well, really, monsters exist for our leading hero or heroine figure. And we know of our heroes based upon which monsters they fought as an allegory for why they restored order and peace back to civilization. So really, if we didn't have monsters, we really wouldn't have our classic hero tales in these ancient stories. In a pagan world, monsters represented the forces of chaos and also paved the way for monotheism as well. But now the concepts of monsters start to get more complex as the gods or demigods or heroes were triumphing over these allegorical creatures. But in monolithic terms, we ask the question, why would a single god create monsters? The theory continues to be this representation of chaos, but one that is more reflective of cultural anxieties or that monsters revealed God's power, which was beyond human understanding. Or in medieval theologian, we have monsters that exist such as skeopods, humans with one leg but two feet, or Bleemies, <laughs> lol, headless humans with eyes or mouse on their chests. Ooh. Yeah, gross. They were not mentioned in the Bible as examplars of God's power, but they were outside the divine dispensation, which is a period in history that forms the framework through which God relates to mankind. Progressing from the medieval era, monsters became less important than other enemies of God, such as witches and demons. Demons were angels who had turned away from God, and witches were humans that had been tempted into worshiping their master, Satan. LOL. Me. To fight these creatures, who didn't always need a classic hero to tell the story, but instead show them fighting their own internal monsters and personal temptations. So Christianity started to represent these internal threats and immoral desires, 
which we had to fight if we wanted to remain pure, such mm-hmm. as lust, greed, pride, gluttony, wrath, sloth, and envy. Combining these ideas of the hero, the physical monster, and the internal monster, a good example is St. George's Dragon. Mm. Although it's a physical being, it represents this internal threat. As in medieval visual culture, artists sometimes represented the dragon with female genitalia to symbolize the lure of sexuality. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you're just laughing at all these different monsters. Also me. So I'm going to let Bianca take us into the history of not only using female bodies for sexual and moral corruption, but also the contemporary use of the monstrous vagina dentata. But thinking about the monstrous and visual culture, we see this continuation of turning the unknown or the threatening into the monster. And in art throughout the ages, monsters are framed around mythology, religion, fairy tales, unconscious fears, and innate human behavior. And as we just discussed, this can be derived from religious or cultural scripts, but flash forwarding through time, monsters are visually documented and can be found not only in fine art, but both scientific and medical, visual and written documents, or in regards to international affairs, such as images of propaganda. I think a constant, however, in the visual display of monsters is that it is an action of depicting a misunderstood or feared other. By turning it into this grotesque or terrifying being as a tool for control and alienation. So the invention of monsters through the human imagination, I think, can be a form of othering in its own. Yeah, Gianna, that was awesome. I'm really glad you talked about that development of monsters because I am going to specifically talk about one monster that we can see mirrored in the exact development that you just shared. I am excited to try and recreate my gender and visual culture class that I had with PA Audrey Kaminsky. Audrey and I had a grand time in this class taught by the incredible Dr. Jennifer Borland. So I've mentioned a little bit about this class, but what I loved so much about it is that it offered a variety of perspectives by which we can analyze gender, including the horror genre. So with that, I would like to talk about the monstrous visuality of the vagina dentata. A lot of what I'm going to use for this comes from an article by Sarah Allison Miller, who is a professor at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. This is Monstrous Sexuality Variations on the Vagina Dentata from the Ashgate Research Companion to the Monsters and the Monstrous. Miller also has a book from 2010 called Medieval Monstrosity and the Female Body, if you are further interested. Miller opens up this discussion by considering the monstrosity of sexual desires, linking lust to an uncontrollable appetite. She provides a few examples, writing, quote, The philosopher, the holy man, and the poet express the efforts of their communities to moderate sexual desires, lest they grow into something monstrous and insatiably hungry. Sexuality 
inextricably bound to pleasure, fecundity, and reproduction, could, they warn, have you in the snares of its teeth, end quote. And this leads into some discussion of the vampire and how the vampire has long been a type of male character, a monstrous male character that preys on beautiful women. And I think for probably people in our age group, Gianna, the best (laughs) example of this is the Twilight series. Oh, God. There's something obviously sensual about the bite of a vampire and in twilight appealing to bella there's this super hot vampire boy who's like trying to bite her and that's okay that's totally fine so (laughs) overall aside from vampires teeth and biting are also very sexualized and let us not forget lady gaga's 2009 song teeth off the fame monster it wouldn't be apt without a quote from mother monster herself about the song teeth she said quote it is meant to mean two things the first one kind of juvenile sexual provocative connotation is about oral sex but also the monster in the song is the fear of truth gotta love it gotta love it now after looking at sexual desires and teeth separately miller writes quote although monstrous teeth generally appear in the mouth itself an organ built to feed corporeal desires nutritive and erotic teeth sprout elsewhere in monstrous flesh even that other lipped organ equipped to stimulate and sate desire the genitals of the female body Perhaps more than any other tooth monster, the vagina dentata, the vagina with teeth, is monstrous sexuality incarnate, end quote. There are a few examples of visual culture and art history that Miller proceeds to discuss that exhibit iterations of the vagina dentata. It is a type of visual imagery that is used in cultures around the world, But the Scylla is a sea monster that she spends a lot of time on, which is a creature that appears in ancient Greek art, as well as literature, such as um, it's personified in John Milton's Paradise Lost, Ovid's Metamorphoses, and in Homer's Odyssey, wherein Scylla is just one of the several female monsters that deter Odysseus. While she may not initially appear as a notably toothy monster. She is often shown with loins in the form of canine mouths. The vagina dentata is also something that represents morality and sin. So like Gianna was talking about, we do see a shift of this same kind of monstrosity from pagan, Greek, Roman mythology through Christianity. While it's commonly thought of as something that can harm a male reproductive organ, i.e. castration, it can also harm the woman itself. When we look at some medieval imagery, it acts as something that represses female sexuality. In some medieval manuscripts, we actually see a kind of caricature of the hellmouth, 
represented as female genitalia. So in Hildegard of Bingen's Scivias, a series of images that were completed in 1151 or 1152, describing 26 religious visions that Hildegard experienced, she depicts a hellmouth wherein Mother Church is assaulted by the Antichrist. A toothy, scary monster actually replaces Mother Church's genitalia. Side note, if you don't know Hildegard, she's a fucking badass German Benedictine abbess, writer, composer, philosopher, visionary of the high Middle Ages. She's so cool. One thing that's interesting about modern and contemporary iterations of the Vangina Dentata is the reclaiming of this imagery. We see this in film, more recently in the 2007 film Teeth, which is about a young girl who is repeatedly assaulted and finds she can use her vagina dentata to save her from the harm of men. There is also a very real-life use of the vagina dentata, there is a device called the Rapax condom that was developed in 2005 by a South African medical technician, Sonnet Ellers, quote, in hopes of providing women with a weapon to defend themselves against rapists. So like Gianna was saying earlier about morality and sin, there are also um, physical objects like the Rapax condom that we've seen from the Middle Ages, such as these kind of chastity belts that are fashioned to appear as a type of vagina dentata. So this invention of lived and real vagina dentata is fascinating to me, as I'm going to talk about a contemporary artist, Lee Bonacu, who uses this idea in her sculptural work. But I'm excited to get into our conversation about Lovecraft Country, Although today we might not be able to get into depth about the continuous concepts of posthumanism, whether that is through Afrofuturism or female cyborgs in the show, but once again we have posthumanism or monstrous concepts of the vagina dentata that was simply an allegory for emasculation and sexual dominance of women's bodies is now something that is not out of the norm anymore, it's something that actually physically exists and is real through the development of myth, science, and technology, an evolutionary process of monsters we see also take shape in Lovecraft Country as well. So when taking a fine art example of the monstrous vagina dentata, we can look at the work of Lee Bonacu, who makes these larger and complex wall reliefs composed of found and conceptual material, such as canvas, metal, rope, or wire, as a means to juxtapose the natural and the industrial or unnatural world. In this work that is untitled, so make sure you look at the resource images we have posted, she references the iconography of popular science fiction, the concept of the cyborg, and a creature that is both human and mechanical. This plays a central role in the narrative of this sculpture as well. So the piece of canvas in this work are grouped tightly in a patchwork arrangement and held tightly with a series of metal belts. The canvas functions as the organic or even human counterpart to the mechanical or industrial components used to create the cyborg. 
that consists of an uncomfortable tension and balance between the natural world and the mechanical made realm of an imagined or dark future. So her sculptures seem to move or have this flexibility and almost flesh-like quality about them as you move around it. And normally or commonly at the center of her sculpture, she creates this black hole of sorts as the three-dimensional space creates this abyss in the middle of the work. But in this piece, however, the focal point is a large protruding and clamped mouth or vagina dentata fashioned from reclaimed saw blades and makes reference to the monstrous cyborg. In this work, Bonacue conspicuously fills the central black void, but includes an array of smaller voids, which are evocative of bodily orifices as well. They could be eyes, mouse, more vaginas. <laughs> her use of both barred and open recesses relates not only to her growing disillusionment with space exploration, but also the idea of entrapment and fear. So all in all, the work functions as this warning that technology can not only open doors for us, but it can actually expose this darker side of humanity. I use her work as our fine art example today, not only just because I enjoy her use of posthumanism and the vagina dentata, but we see this trend in contemporary art where artists are using monster theory to speak to larger social or political behaviors, and I think she's a really good and clear example of that. Oh, Gianna, this is so cool. I need to go take some looksies at her work. As you were talking, I just like couldn't stop thinking about posthumanism and Afrofuturism and in Lovecraft Country things that you're saying when you're talking about this art that are really just hitting me now as we're recording. So this is really exciting. Um, I would just like to say that one time I made a vagina dentata cupcake and it was really cute and delicious. So Ooh. basically like a fine artist, but I love that journey for you. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. <laughs> I, I want to like get to our break so we can come back and talk about the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone. So we are going to take a little break. And when we return, we are going to talk about monster theory and the HBO show Lovecraft Country. about the HBO series Lovecraft Country. Now, if you don't want any spoilers, please don't keep listening because I really don't want you to be mad at us whenever you listen to the spoilers. Watch the show and come back to hear our thoughts next to yours. But if you feel up to it, keep on listening because we are going to get into the show and talk about some more monster theory. I feel like well, I guess it was 10 weeks ago now that I gave a little description of what I thought the show was going to be about on the whole. 
But really, what I described 10 weeks ago was actually just the plot of the first episode. And I thought that was going to be what the whole series was about. But boy, did things change a whole lot after the first episode. So Gianna, I want to ask you, now that we've completed it, what are your initial thoughts? How did you end up liking the show overall? So when HBO announced their release date, I was listening to the Keep It podcast where they were discussing the origin of HBO's Lovecraft Country as an adaptation and an act of reclamation of the horror author and white supremacist H.P. Lovecraft's tales as he either excluded people of color in his horror sci-fi writings or he used them in the narrative to further push his racist agenda. So I wasn't familiar with H.P. Lovecraft or his work until the show came about. So I watched the first episode and as Bianca said, if you're listening, as of now, you probably most likely watched the series, but there were a lot of things happening in the first opening scene where (laughs) you have monsters and historic icons battling it out in total chaos with also not a lot of consistency in how the science fiction or horish elements are being used or shown. But now that I have made it to the end of this season, that opening scene actually functioned to foreshadow the tone of the show, (laughs) as it was meant to, I think, encompass different genres of horror and sci-fi and history, as to include people of color and primarily black characters into narratives they have normally not been the lead, or again, they are used to fuel malicious and oppressive views. So overall, the show I thought was great in a lot of ways and confusing in a lot of ways. I enjoyed peeling back all the layers as the show progressed. But Mm -hmm. with that, in order to understand the reclamation that HBO's Lovecraft Country is based upon, we do need to take a deeper look at H.P. Lovecraft, the person, and the book the show was based on. So H.P. Lovecraft was a xenophobic, anti-Semitic, and white supremacist and supporter of Adolf Hitler and a total piece of garbage. (laughs) Aside from his not-so-subtle racist stories, we clearly know how horrible this guy was, as in his autobiography, he used racist language about basically every single ethnic group there is including those who are Jewish, Chinese, Portuguese, Italian, and Latinx people. Just can't say enough. Sounds like a cool guy. Sounds like a... I'm a neat guy. I'm a neat guy. (laughs) False. So the book Lovecraft Country was not written by H.P. Lovecraft. It was actually written fairly recently in 2016 by an American author of thriller, science fiction, and comic novels, Matt Ruff, whose books functioned in the way that the show does. This is where we also get our characters and main protagonist, Atticus, who is a science fiction fan who experiences racism and magic with his family in the United States during the Jim Crow era. Yeah, so clearly this show has a lot of layers to it because 
there are parts of the show where H.P. Lovecraft and his monsters are coming through and his racism and his racist rhetoric is coming through through the show. But it's also not really a like it's not really about H.P. Lovecraft necessarily. It's it's based on this book, like Gianna said. So if you if you want a really good explanation for the show, there was an SNL skit with Issa Rae that was cut for time, but you can find it on our YouTube channel, on a playlist, or just obviously on SNL's Instagram. And Issa Rae is trying to explain the show to the people that she's sitting with. And she's like, yeah, have you watched the show? Like, it's so good. You have Jackie Robinson, like, defeating Cthulhu in the first episode and blah, blah, blah. And everyone's like, oh, cool. Like, so, so yeah, like, what's this, like, what's it about? And she's like, well, it's about witches. It's about black people. It's about racism in America. And, like, you, I, I don't even know how to necessarily explain the show because I feel like the first episode is really easy to explain. The first episode has a, a, a consistent plot, I guess, and a, and a story that's easy to read. But overall, the show is, is all over the place. But Issa Rae does a really good job of explaining that. Yeah, honestly. So did HBO's Lovecraft Country use Mark... I want to say Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> I was trying to say Matt Ruff. And it came out Mark Ruff, Mark Ruff. <laughs> Basically, like the, the book could have been written by Matt Ruff or Mark Ruffalo. I think like that a, Matt Ruff is a pseudonym I was or is say, a, a pen name for Mark Ruffalo, who's writing Lovecraft Country. Honestly, I mean, he would. the actor of the Hulk makes sense. I think so. Uh, more iconically, his role... As Maddie in 13 Going on 30. Oh, of course. Let us not forget. Matt, Mark, Maddie. I don't know. It's all making sense. Ah, uh, yes. You heard it here. <laughs> APG conspiracy theory. <laughs> Mark Ruffalo wrote Lovecraft Country, folks. That's the conspiracy theory I want to hear more about. I'm not going to say that when I was looking at pictures of Matt Ruff that they look similar, but they are two, like, basic white-looking guys, so... Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that, like, curly brown hair, like, I don't know. Could be true. What do I know? I'm just an art history podcast host. <laughs> so did HBO's Lovecraft Country use Ruff's book for the show specifically? And as far as the main plot goes, I can't say for certain. I think the show stayed fairly close to the book although I will say there is going to be a second season so I know the ending was a like a little different wait there but is going to be a second season I heard there there have plans for a second season oh interesting <laughs> <laughs> okay okay no go on go on oh gosh tell us how you really feel <laughs> but Ruff's book was basically used as a jumping off point mm -hmm. for the showrunner Misha Green and executive producers Jordan Peele and J.J. Abrams. As really the goal was to make everything Ruff had created and push it a step further. And boy did they push it. <laughs> How can we take our adaptation of Lovecraft 
which was already an adaptation of HP's work, to the next level. So it's like an adaptation of an adaptation. And I think this is also very similar to what we talked about in regards to Little Fires Everywhere, Bianca, where yeah. the author, Celeste Ng, couldn't do everything she wanted to accomplish in the book as she was working from mostly just her perspective. But when you are developing a production, you can involve more people on how to appropriately not only talk about or read about, but view Black female experiences in the case of Little Fires Everywhere. Because so Matt that- Ruff is a, is a white man. Yes. I mean, I don't know his background, but just presumably off of photos, which maybe isn't the best thing to do, but um, I don't know, like, his 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 personal histories involved with the story that Misha Green is telling. Right. And I think his interests in adapting H.P. Lovecraft's work stemmed from just his knowledge about the sci-fi and fiction genre. Mm. So instead of exploring more of Lovecraft's mythology, the showrunner, again Misha Green, decided to, instead of adapting from Lovecraft's work itself, it would be more beneficial to use Ruff's story as a baseline for the plot, but now include the words of Black writers, including James Baldwin and Nintozek Shang. This also helps to obviously address Lovecraft's racist legacy, which is the driving intent, but it also works to not glorify him at the same time. So Misha Green speaks on this, actually, and she says, quote, I think it was that thing that Matt was doing that I was really intrigued about, which is the idea of reclaiming it and not saying that we're going to honor all of your contributions to this genre. And there are many, but we're going to take that, we're going to acknowledge who you are as a person as well, and we're going to move forward, end quote. When I read this statement, I thought it was just fascinating because it really spoke to the ending of this season where Atticus and Lenny and their family literally took magic back. Mm -hmm. They are now the sole holders of this power of this magic and that was the very thing used against them and white people will now forever be stripped of using magic ever again. I also just thought this was interesting since the whole season pretty much ended up being more about the concept of magic than monsters itself. Mm -hmm. Although there was what we talked about earlier, that internal monstrous struggle that we see. But if now magic is stripped from white people and their ability to use it, I'm curious how a second season could could evolve from that. So, yeah. So I think after listening to you, Gianna, it makes more sense. What maybe maybe why magic is the forefront mystical force that's driving the show rather than monsters. So. We do have monsters that we see, like, and, and Lovecraft and his monsters are definitely a part of this series. I mean, obviously, Lovecraft's name itself is in the title of the show, even though, you know, there's not a whole lot of specific re- reference to H.P. himself. I mean, there's, I think there's a little bit. I, I do wish, though, that in the end there was more consistency because 
Lovecraft is so known for his monsters, and I would have liked to see that reclamation take place in a stronger way in the show. Because we, like I said, we do see the monsters, but really I think they're in like three episodes. The first one, one where the monsters end up attacking the police, and we start to see kind of Atticus engage with the monsters in a more controlling way. And then in the final episode, we so we do see the black characters take control of them, but the monsters really aren't a, a focal point. The bigger focal point is actually, like I said, magic and witchcraft, which is where I think we get off track as a viewer, or at least I got off track as a viewer, because titling the show after Lovecraft and opening the show with the idea of monsters like I said in in the very opening sequence we see Jackie Robinson defeat this massive monster it it set up the show for me in my mind a different way to when it shifted to the magical I was feeling confused but we also see maybe the most interesting monster wherein we see monstrous sexuality represented in Atticus's girlfriend that he meets in Korea. In the episode where we see Atticus in the war, that story is really more about the horrific encounters with one of the biggest monsters in Korean folklore, which is the Kumiho. The Kumiho is a Korean interpretation of the nine-tailed spirit foxes that also appear in Chinese and Japanese folklore. However, the Korean incarnation is more ravenous, I mean, definitely more so in the show, feasting on the body parts of humans while often taking the disguise of a beautiful woman to trick or seduce men before devouring them. The Kamiho in Lovecraft Country takes the form of, like I said, Atticus's girlfriend, Jia, a young woman studying to become a nurse in South Korea during the war. In the episode, Jia reveals that her father repeatedly raped her as a child while her mother kind of turned a blind eye to that. And to basically get her daughter back, Gia's mother makes a deal with the local shaman to summon a kumiho and bond it to the daughter's body, Gia's body, but with her memories intact. If the kumiho within Gia consumes the souls of 100 men, it is implied that her transformation into a human will be complete. With Gia consuming their souls and absorbing their memories through her tails before ripping these men apart. It's interesting in terms of the monstrous and really what we talked about in the first half of the show with monstrous sexuality. But I'm, I'm not really sure that I needed her in the show. I mean, I guess... I think that her place in the ending of the story, for me, felt a little forced. I also feel a little bit weird about Gia consuming the souls of men in a super sexualized way, because I think that what we see in the end with Gia and the Kumiho is that she doesn't necessarily have to have sex with these men to consume their souls. I mean, 
her seduction is a way of just finding these men alone and being able to complete that task. But I think for me, she was still a, a little bit over-sexualized in her seduction. Yeah, I'm curious about what you found about the original tale of the Kamihu, because in the show, she specifically says something happens when her sexual partner actually climaxes and then at that point like she's able to take their memories memories, Mm -hmm. and then they like die and explode and i'm like what i kept thinking there in that episode i'm like damn they have to clean that room every single time time. that was the most unrealistic part to me yeah right she yeah (laughs) that i thought that was unrealistic so i'm not 1000% sure about the direct correlation between the Korean Kumiho and what's being represented in that monstrous sexuality of Gia's in the show. Because like I said, there are a few different interpretations of the Kumiho. So I'm not, I'm not 1000% on how um, sexually explicit that consumption of the male body is for that story so overall i mean what did we like about the show and what did we not like about the show i i did enjoy watching it as it was something kind of scary i mean actually there were a few episodes where i was like oh fuck i was like i'm scared to watch this by myself i liked watching that during the fall season just as a consumer it was well made i loved the cast i thought the two leads were amazing and I the first episode was so good I mean I kind of wish that the whole first season was about the journey to find his dad I thought that was just going to be drawn out a whole lot more and I liked the uncle a lot too I know I was so sad when he died right overall the case for making America the place and white people, the perpetrators of a horrific space for black people, is is really well done. And I like the insertion of black stories into the horror genre and into a space that is actually a very real fear for people of color, indigenous peoples, and minorities. Like the the white space of the American landscape is horrific. And, it, and it, it translates well in a show like this. But I think it's actually the surface plot that I didn't like. I mean, each episode's different story was so confusing to follow outside of the racial and literary undertones or those subplots that we see running through it. I mean, Jenna, I don't know about you, but the whole episode where they go to the museum and like Indiana Jones it across the imaginary bridge <laughs> and the dad kills that woman that they brought back to life. Honestly, I do, like I'm not entirely sure what happened and I still made it through the whole season. And I also don't totally understand the connection and the lineage of Atticus and his relationship to the witches and Christina, the whole family (laughs) connections. Like, I I understand where they led us, and I understand where they started and how it ended, but the whole surface plot in between that 
I got really, really lost. And I'm also not entirely sure the connection that the police officers have to Christina other and like that they have to witchcraft in general other than they serve as a device to showcase systematic racism okay in the well, United States Bianca I was literally gonna ask you because so to answer one of your questions it the kind of family history between Christina and Atticus more become clear in like honestly the last episode where they bring back her what is it like her great great grandfather and uh he comes back in kind of like a ghost and then he has to like yeah. cut off a piece of his skin and like eat it yes. <laughs> um it's my understanding that Christina's great great grandfather raped his slave who was the woman that Atticus sees running in the flames in the house. In the fire. Okay. In the fire. So that is how their two families were connected through this traumatic event. No, I mean, there were a lot of, I don't want to say there was, there weren't any plot holes. It's just, there was so much going on that Mm -hmm. it it was a, a lot to try to figure out. I do feel like all in all at the end, it it did come together. And I guess because there was so much happening, I didn't mind being confused at times or being lost a little bit because a lot of the episodes would jump or like when they went over to talk about the Kamiho and Korea and then they yeah. also had Hippolyta go on her her journey. Time traveling journey. Time traveling journey. <laughs> that well, she ep- spent like two she said she spent like two hundred years like traveling to Right. But what I was going to say was I think the biggest thing that I was confused about was the plot line involving the police officials where they cursed Hippolyta's daughter. And then mm-hmm. one guy had, I believe, black skin magically stapled to his chest, to his body, and had yeah. a guy inches from death hanging in his closet and they never really explained who that person was i guess we were just supposed to be like these are bad people so it was hard to follow their involvement and their ties to christina i think that was my biggest i don't understand what's Mm -hmm. going on there and then they dumped her in the lake that one time so that i was confused why they were like why did she pick them like how are they I don't know exactly why, like, those men were the one ones that she picked to recreate the death of Emmett Till. So, because basically when Ruby comes, you know, she, they talk about their exchanges and frustrations and she, and then Christina says, like, you know, she basically doesn't give a shit mm-hmm. because she's just a woman that wants what she wants. Right. But then she goes and she practices her magic to recreate this the death of Emmett Till and I I think it's unclear as to why she wanted that to happen I don't know if maybe to try to prove to herself that she does care about what happens to the black community and that this excursion she's going on and her desire for immortality isn't about race it's just about for her more gender um, being mm-hmm. so discriminated against in the magical world from her mm-hmm. family and her mm-hmm. experiencing her own form of exclusion. Um, 
but yeah, the ties to her and the whole police squad were, were very confusing to me. I thought it would bother me more when the visual effects changed based on what kind of horror genre they were trying to depict. But for me, I felt the biggest shift uh, was actually in the beginning, starting with the first episode that felt more Goonies, Night in the Woods with Monsters, to then Letty's haunted house that was formerly owned by this white psychopath doctor who experimented on black subjects. So after that, I expected changes in the narrative and also changes visually, and it wasn't as off-putting to me after that. And as I said, I really liked the episode with Hippolyta time traveling, even though I felt like it was a pretty big mood shift. And I thought the episode with Gia in Korea was actually very interesting. But both of those characters' conclusions or involvement in the end felt very, very rushed to me. Mm-hmm. Right. All in all, Bianca, I agree. I was invested in these themes merging together and to see what the show was accomplishing or investigating in each separate episode rather than the whole plot line or the conclusion of the family. Yeah, yeah. And really, Gianna, I mean, as you know, we were talking in the first half of the episode, all, all these things that you were talking about with the feminist cyborg and Afrofuturism really started clicking for me whenever you were talking about monsters in the first half so yeah I think that's a really great way to think about it is you see all these amazing themes in each episode the way that the writers are exploring those fears I think is a is a successful point of the show and I thought it was pretty successful in the way they did tie it at the end with Hippolyta taking Diana to the future or to some other realm to have this cyborg robotic arm and then to actually be the person who ends up actually killing Christina. And yeah. that's how this season ends. And with Diana, her connection to the monsters mm -hmm. in the end, I thought worked well. So I thought it worked well starting with this kind of defeat of the monster in the opening scene of episode one and then ending with Diana reclaiming the, the power of the monster as something that works for her, not something she's trying to necessarily slaughter. Right. And I also feel like just visually the tone in the last episode, especially bringing back those original monsters. Mm-hmm visually tied in with the first episode so I right. felt like we really came finally like full swing which I appreciated so they yeah. did end the season on a cliffhanger you know we don't know what's going to happen after this but they finally they did wrap up this part of this story yeah they wrapped it up but I but in the end, I'm not sure that I needed a bunch of the middle or, mm -hmm. or I, I needed a a more consistent middle, I yeah. guess, in the end. Yeah. I, when I was watching it, I really just took each episode week by week mm -hmm. and just kind of tried to appreciate them, as we said, for the themes they were investigating in each episode. And I didn't really, like, concern myself too much with the overall plot line, but... 
would I like to concern myself with the plot lines of the shows that I am watching? Like, absolutely. So yeah. this was just a very, very unique show. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad we watched it. I'm glad we talked about it. I hope that all of our listeners enjoyed the conversation about it. If you haven't seen it yet, but you listen to this, um, check it out and, you know, let us know what you think. Because I'd, I'd definitely be interested to hear what other people have to say about the show. Because I think there's a lot, you know, that each individual can can pick up on and, and talk about. So. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, next week, we have a very special episode. We have Gianna's interview with APT friend and amazing artist, Clara Titus. Gianna has put together a really nice video of the interview, so you can actually watch the interview. You'll see some of Clara's work in the video that will go on YouTube, but of course, you can also listen to it as a podcast, just like normal. Don't forget, if you are a new listener, we also have merch available for purchase on our website. And if you're looking for any nice holiday gifts, anyone should check out our merch store at ourpoptalk.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and we have a lot of resources on YouTube and our resources page on our website. We have a lot of listeners who use Apple Podcasts, so if you wouldn't mind rating us and leaving a comment, we would so appreciate it. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening, and go vote. Go vote. Go vote. And we will talk to you on Tuesday. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.